You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 20th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, we turn to Davos to look ahead to this year's World Economic Forum and we'll find out why delegates are being encouraged to bring their snowshoes and leave their limos behind. And we are still in a world where we've had a massive transfer of wealth upwards and we're in the middle of a planetary emergency, which calls into question the model of capitalism. Speaking of Davos, my guests on today's news panel, Isabel Hilton and Yossi Meckelberg, will discuss this year's theme of stakeholder capitalism and some of the day's other news, including China admits to more cases of a deadly new virus. But will it cover up the true extent of the emergency the way it did with SARS? Plus, we look at what's behind the UK government's look into whether to move one of the two chambers of Britain's Parliament out of London entirely. I'm Paul Osborne. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. Global leaders are touching down in the Swiss mountain town of Davos today as they prepare for the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. They'll be discussing everything from trade to tech and politics to climate change. Monocle's editor-in-chief Tyler Brillet joins us now from our bureau in Zurich. Tyler, uh, welcome. What can we expect from Davos this year? at the moment uh, is is very much focused on just the arrival of Mr. Trump. If you look at uh, any of the news outlets in Switzerland right now, uh, a, a lot of uh, the, the the news bulletins are, you know, dear citizens of Switzerland and, and maybe from neighboring countries, do not make your way to Cloton Airport to watch the arrival uh, of, of Air Force One. Uh, so, so, of course, uh, everything gets underway. Tomorrow, lots of people are making their way up to the mountain. Uh, but certainly, just, just as, as, uh, as in years before, much more focus on 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 Trump. Uh, there there is sort of much excitement, uh, and and of course you know people thinking about you know a, a, another potential snowy showdown between uh, Trump uh, and and Greta Thunberg. And of course Donald Trump's mind may well be focused a little bit on what's going on in the Senate at the same time. Well, exactly. I think he's going to have to be keeping a very close eye uh, on what's uh, happening uh, six, uh, six time zones uh, behind. Uh, yesterday, when uh, we had the, the premiere edition of uh, Monocle on Sunday out of here in Zurich, uh, we were talking to uh, a number of, of journalists and, and commentators, Paul, um, about the themes. Of course, uh, you know, climate is, is very uh, much, of course, going to be uh, front and center uh, as it, of course, dominates uh, you know, so many news outlets today. But it was interesting. There's a good piece in the Neuzurker Zeitung uh, today, and it's an interview uh, with Klaus Schwab, of course, the, the founder of the World Economic Forum. And the paper, um, they asked him, they said, you know, the motto this year is uh, stakeholders for a cohesive and sustainable world, which is it's a bit of a mouthful, uh, even on radio at, at midday Central European time. And and the ends of it asked him, they said, you know, are we expecting a Greta World Economic Forum? And and it was it's, it's interesting because um, Mr. Schwab, um, you know, um, not always uh, ever the diplomat, but he said, you know, Greta is an, an impressive young woman. Woman, I'm quoting this. He says, but I don't want Greta to instrumentalize me. He says, we now have invited 10 Gretas under the age uh, of 20, all of whom have a special concern. He talks about Ms. Malati um, from Indonesia and who's really been part of the whole uh, plastic policy uh, that's underway there. Um, he also wanted to make a bit of a kicker when we think about, because uh, obviously WEF um, does get you know a beating because we have heads of state uh, and of course business leaders uh, flying in from all over the world, landing 
landing in Dubendorf, landing at Kloten Airport uh, here in Zurich. And he's saying also, by the way, he says, we have no influence on how people uh, get here. So, you know, if someone chooses to come by aircraft, that's their business. Go bother their country. Uh, go bother the finance ministry of whoever paid for it uh, in, that, in that nation. Uh, but we, as the World Economic Forum, compensate for all CO2 emissions. Well, that's interesting because beforehand the delegates were being encouraged to consider taking the train. I think they were even being offered uh, snowshoes to try and get them to walk from venue to venue instead of taking limos. Well, yeah, that that could be. And and smart people, um, and it's not just, uh, of course, delegates who, who are showing up, know that probably the, the better way, not just the more sustainable way, is to jump on the train from the airport. Uh, and if you catch the right train, it can take you all the way through to, to, uh, to Landquart. Uh, and then you get on the, the, the sweet little... You know, red mountain train, uh, and it takes you uh, all the way up to Davos Platz or, or, or Davos Dorf, and you don't have to uh, to go for for the chopper uh, shuttle. But it is um, it is interesting just uh, looking at at the wires out of Switzerland. Uh, you know, right now they are saying that, um, and it, this is this is interesting that you know I don't know if we would if you'd get someone. Uh, uh, certainly, this is the, the head of uh, the police for for Graubund, and and uh, the, pay, the the wires are asking at, at the moment what is the you know the biggest uh, threat. Um, um, and Mr. Walter Schlegel says the most likely threat is an assassination attempt by uh, individual offenders or small groups. Uh, they said that the terrorism uh, alert level uh, for, for WEF really hasn't changed since, uh, since 2015 off the back of the Paris attacks. Monocle's editor-in-chief, Tyler Brulé. This is Monocle's House View. A moment ago, we were talking about the impending start of events in Davos. This is the 50th World Economic Forum, and this time it's on the theme of stakeholder capitalism. Well, to discuss that and some of the day's other top stories, I'm joined now by Isabel Hilton, who's the editor of China Dialogue, and Yossi Meckelberg, Professor of International Relations at Regents University in London. Uh, Isabel, uh, this idea of stakeholder capitalism, of looking after customers and communities as well as shareholders, it sounds lovely in theory, but does it ever actually work in practice? Well, uh, let's say it has quite a long way to go. I, I, I mean, if you think back maybe 20 years, if you talk to a senior executive at a business, they were extremely insistent that their primary and indeed only duty was to the shareholder. And that meant that they took no responsibility for trashing the environment or for, you know, the general economic well-being of the communities in which they functioned. That view is very much out of fashion. Uh, but nevertheless, we, we are still in a world where we've had a massive transfer of wealth upwards, you know, with the gap between rich and poor is uh, breathtakingly large. And we're in the middle of, of a planetary emergency, which, you know, calls into question the model of, of capitalism, including Chinese capitalism. Um, and and I think it really has quite a long way to go. And I think what you'll see in Davos this year is a much more proactive conversation around sustainability, but also biodiversity and climate change. And we've seen a couple of big eye-catching announcements uh, last week Um one BlackRock talking about uh, using their seven trillion of, of wealth under management to pressure firms to move out, for instance, of coal and to take a more responsible view of climate change. 
and another from Microsoft saying, pledging that they would eventually remove from the atmosphere all the carbon that they had ever emitted. Now, those are kind of big companies making big, big announcements. And I think what that shows is that they're very aware that both the talent they might want to recruit and the public who buy their stuff are very concerned about how these companies are run. Yossi, forgive me for being a cynic for a moment, but it does sound a little bit like public relations, that a gathering of the world's rich and powerful that says, you know, we care about the environment. And we heard a moment ago that they've been asking people to walk to venues, stop using limos, stop getting helicopters up the mountain, and then had to hold their hands up and say, well, it's not actually our fault if all these chief executives, you know, we can ask them not to get the helicopter. But if they choose to, you know, it's not really... It, the, the, the danger, isn't it, is that it sounds a bit like rich people mouthing platitudes to keep protesters at bay for a while. Yeah, you almost made me feel sorry for them that they won't have to use the helicopters and the limousines. It's not really a sad story. But if you look at the real figures in the world, not the one... Davos, I'm sure, is a lovely place, and I'm sure they will have a great time together, but it's completely detached from the realities of most people. 1% of, of people have twice as much wealth than the other 6.9 billion. 22 richest men in the world have more than all the wealth that women in Africa. Those are figures if you go, for instance, to Oxfam. You look at the United Nations Human Development Report. It all tells you that inequality is the main issue here. Environment is very important, obviously, and they're interrelated. They're not separate from one another. And only if you address them in a holistic way, we can move forward. But to have this, it, it's anachronistic to bring probably large part of this wealth to the same place in one of the most expensive countries in the world, beautiful country nevertheless, and discuss what most of people endure, which they never have to endure. It's, it's, it's pointless. Short of the thing, it gives us something to talk about it, but actually it's emphasized the detachment from governments for those that have this wealth, accumulate this wealth from the life of the rest of the world. Uh, but playing devil's advocate for a second though, Isabel, if you can't engage the richest, the most powerful in these issues, then you probably aren't going to be able to move the needle on them either. Well, this is a long conversation about how you bring about change. And... Um, I, I, I absolutely agree that this is not, it hasn't been very promising so far. What was mildly more interesting about the BlackRock announcement was um, that the, the realisation that, that business depends on a number of things. Um, it depends on the social licence to operate, which is a reflection of the stakeholder discussion. And it also depends, you know, on the natural material world and that climate change is a material risk. So you have one of the world's biggest investors saying, you know, investment is not sound unless it really takes climate risk on board. Now, I think that if you just try to persuade their BlackRock not to invest because it was immoral or, you know, it was the wrong thing or their mothers might not approve, it would have had very little effect. But once you make the argument that if you want to go on doing business at all, then you have to you do have it to in a, a different... You have to put a dollar sign in front you of have to do, Yeah, I think so, because that's how these people think. And if you, if you look at 
You know, it's absolutely evident that destroying the planet is not good for business. But most businesses report in such short cycles. It's what Mark Carney called the tragedy of the horizons, that you can talk in five and ten year terms and you can absolutely see the way things are going. But the guys who get their bonuses get them on the next quarter or the quarter after that. So why would they care? So it's bridging the gap between how businesses really operate and the damage they do and the longer term interests of everybody on earth, frankly. For all of this goodwill and good intentions to, to discuss and address these issues of climate change, you do have that sense, and we got we got this again from talking to Tyler a few minutes ago, that this could all be derailed by one tweet or comment from Donald Trump. Yeah, and you have on the one side Donald Trump and on the other uh, Greta Thunberg, the both of them, he probably will send her to watch some movies with her friends because he doesn't take her seriously, though he should take her seriously. He is completely detached from the realities. It's not only there and it's not in the climate change. Look what happened in other places, in Latin America, in, in Lebanon, in Iraq. All these demonstrations that take place, it shows you have a generation that is completely disenchanted. From, from what's happening, from the, either the economic class or the, uh, or the political class. They want change and a real change and change now. They also have the knowledge and the awareness that if they won't do it now, it might not happen or it will be too late for this to happen. And this, again, the limousine and the helicopters uh, will keep flying. If not in Davos, they will do it in another place in, uh, on, 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 on another time. So I think, again, not to be too cynical about it. Yes, it's important that we discuss it. It's important that it happens. And actually, there is some awareness, as you say, Isabel, of some of the company that it's self-interest for them to do that. But how do you do it? You talk about dollar sign, for instance, dealing with tax loopholes. If they will pay taxes, if we are talking about Amazon or the Microsoft or the Google of this world, if they pay taxes, then you have more money to invest into green energy, for instance into uh, decreasing the inequality. So there are things that can be done. The question is if there is the social and political will to do that. Yossi Meckelberg and Isabel Hilton there, and we'll be back in just a moment. First, though, here's Monocle's Daniel Bates with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Paul. A leading Hong Kong pro-democracy activist has been arrested following fresh demonstrations which turned violent in the city-state. Ventus Lau was detained on charges of obstructing police and violating the terms set for the protest in the city's financial district. Officers fired tear gas to disperse the crowds. Venezuela's opposition leader Juan Guaido has traveled to Colombia for a counterterrorism meeting with the U.S. Secretary of State. This is the second time Guaido defied a travel ban imposed by the Supreme Court. President Nicolas Maduro accuses the U.S. of trying to orchestrate a coup to oust him. And the Monocle Minute reports on the Vogue family expanding. A new Singapore edition of the magazine is set to launch in the fourth quarter of this year. This will be the publication's 27th international title and follows a Hong Kong edition which launched last year. You can read more about this by subscribing to our daily digest at monocle.com forward slash minute. Those are some of the headlines we're following now. Back to you, Paul. Daniel, thank you. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne. With me are Isabel Hilton and Yossi Meckelberg. And next, uh, we turn to China, where authorities have confirmed a surge in the number of cases of a new virus. The number of confirmed cases of coronavirus has now tripled and a third person has died. South Korea, meanwhile, has also reported its first confirmed cases. There are now four patients outside China. 
Uh, Isabel, this comes just ahead of the Lunar New Year, where the hundreds of millions of Chinese will be travelling all over the country and presumably uh, spreading it even further. It's it's Spring Festival, Chinese New Year, um, and everybody goes home if they possibly can. So people will be flying into China. You know, China's enormous diaspora will be going home. Uh, and within China, you know, everyone is going back to um, see the parents. Uh, so, of course, the potential for cross-infection is massive. And I think that it's very hard to look at this without thinking about 2003 and the and the SARS epidemic which followed a quite a similar pattern of a very slow burn ostensibly a failure to contain right at the start and a concealment of the of the scale of the epidemic and that ended up with about seven more than 7000 cases internationally and a death rate of about 1 in 10 so you know this is a recurring pattern in china um that you get this this these viruses which jump from animals where they're very common into a human population the big question then is how are they transmitted is it human to human or is it do you have to be in direct contact with the source now the authorities started off by saying there was no evidence of human to human uh, transmission. I think this is not true. I think that you've now got enough people with such a kind of tangential relationship to the animal market where this began, or they think it began, that that clearly there's human to human transmission going on. And at that point, you get hundreds of millions of people on the move, you know, crowded transport, and and you have potentially something that could be even more explosive. You mentioned the, the, the SARS outbreak nearly 20 years ago now. And, um, and Yossi, while the, while the official number of cases at the moment is, is around about 200, um, one study outside of China said that they thought there were about 1,700 cases in just one city, which Chinese authorities have so far made absolutely silent about, which is only going to add to that concept, that concern about transparency, that idea that actually could this be a lot worse than we're being told? The first reaction from politicians, if something goes wrong, is cover-up. Or oh, it's because there might be someone at fault there, so you might, we need to make him or her accountable. So the first, instead of taking a completely scientific approach, that actually ask for help from the outside, from the WHO, whoever can help dealing with, with viruses, the other thing is to cover up the numbers because it's embarrassing and who is who was in charge and didn't do what they, they were supposed to do? Is it going to affect our economy, whether it's tourism, whether it's our agriculture? So the first instance is let's cover it up. Let's start to see if we can solve it. And usually this is not the case and actually it gets even worse. And, the, and the, the rational answer to this is to take exactly the opposite. In a globalized world, you need actually to mobilize all the forces that can help you to deal with it in, in the most cold and scientific approach. Which raises the question, Isabel, of how likely is it that Chinese authorities are going to say, let's pick up the phone to the WHO and open the doors? Actually, they did pick up the phone to the WHO. They reported it on New Year's Eve. We don't know how how long it had been you know, germ, you know, uh, incubating at that point, but they did report it. <coughs> I think, though, that the point is absolutely right that China's not a society in which transparency is is foremost in public officials' minds and and there is in a highly authoritarian top down system there's a great fear of being blamed and and clearly these systems always look for someone to blame the failure 
which is the worrying failure, is that when you get something like this, it, it's very important to identify the source and to contain it. Uh, now, the source, as I said, was, was said to be this, this animal market in Wuhan. But there's a failure of containment here. And at that point, you know, it's, it, it's potentially out of control. Um, it, one of the things that, that's fascinating about this, Yossi, is that, is that while the Chinese authorities were accused of not doing a good enough job of, of trying to cover up the SARS outbreak the last time, um, this time you've got Chinese state-owned newspapers saying what we need to do is be open. What we need to do is make certain that we're being open with the rest of the world about this. Now, the fact that, that the Chinese press is saying that you could take that as as an indication that that it is going to be more open this time. That that blame culture might possibly not be paramount. This I time. think it's also part of what's happening internationally because we see something similar. This in Iran, for instance, that the media is already saying we are not doing the the official line anymore, the government's line anymore, because this compromises and they develop professional pride that we are not going to compromise and then being blamed for serving the government. Of course, with this come big risks, especially, as Isabel said, in such an authoritarian uh, regime that someone might pay the price that's within, within the press. But I think this is one of the good signs that we'll see in different countries the press is not ready to be actually told what to do it's not always telling the, the, the official line. We actually more our our loyalty is our profession, and in, in this sense, in journalism, to make sure that the public knows what's really happening. They're not what our governments want us to know. Now, in the weeks after Boris Johnson's election victory, there have been many promises to level up. Britain's economy, giving the north of England and the Midlands in particular the same attention and economic benefits that have for years been enjoyed by London and the South East. Well, the government confirmed at the weekend that it is looking at whether or not to move one of the two chambers of Britain's parliament out of London entirely. I mean, this, Yossi, is not the House of Commons. MPs aren't going to leave London, heavens no. But the House of Lords apparently may well end up in York. Yeah, we, uh, you should ask probably the, the members of the House of Lords how keen they are to spend most of the time in, in York. York's a beautiful it, city. It's a beautiful city. I love it too. But you have to question whether they want, you know, they are London-based. You see, in the age of populism, it's, it sounds fantastic. And in, on the face of it, why not? Let's have the House of Lords and we can then, we can, we can, we can put, you know, maybe, maybe we, we, we can put the House of Commons in Blackburn. And then we don't need London altogether. You see, every country has, has the center of power. Now, the question is not where it sits, how we devolve powers, how we give actually power to the local authorities. You know, we just heard today about the HS and the, and, and the train system. This was important. You see, it's nice to, be, to, to find the, a, a plot of land in York and say it will be a beautiful building which probably will cost a lot of money and we just send the laws over there and then some of the Labour Party said they will cancel it anyway so it would be a building without the House of Lords but the, this is not the question you need for instance how you're going to make decision how for instance the communication between the House of Commons and the House of Lords is going to take place because this is part of the decision making in and in, in part of the constitution here the most important thing is to deal with the issues of devolved powers and giving more power to the regions in, in the UK. For instance, the decision about railway not going to be taken here, and we have very 
fancy trains and expensive over budgeted while they're still using old-fashioned system of trains and and then when it comes to education we come to the health service not again it's a very boris johnson like let's capture the headlines it sounds good but i'm not doing much for the people themselves and it seems as well to be at odds with what boris johnson himself has said because he admitted his election victory was largely off the back of traditional Labour voters in the north of England, and he admitted that they had lent them the votes for one election cycle, and that if in five years' time they can't see tangible improvements in their communities, they would probably go back to the Labour Party. Now, having the House of Lords in York sounds lovely, and I'm sure it is. say York's a beautiful place, but it doesn't create thriving high streets. It doesn't bring jobs to struggling communities except presumably building the house of lords butlers won't they i mean (laughs) well very 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 true um but it it does have that sort of that that old boris johnson feel of the big publicity grabbing attention seeking announcement that has very little beneath it i think you could call it the garden bridge of of politics really couldn't you of course Um, the garden bridge was never actually built indeed we wasted an awful lot of public money not building the garden bridge but he was very keen on it i think it's also worth remembering that dominic cummings who is this you know kind of svengali like uh, chief advisor to boris johnson who who was instrumental in winning the uh, election campaign cut his teeth many years ago on a a campaign against uh, devolved power to the north of England Uh, with the he's very good at slogans and he thought at the slogan politicians talk you pay Um, and it was so powerful that people voted against the option of having politics you know real politics um, devolved assembly for the north so this is just nonsense frankly I mean if he was really serious about political reform he would cut down the size of the house of lords which is second only to the Chinese National People's Congress uh, in its in its sheer volume, um, and and instead of which, you know, two two Tory politicians who lost their seats were immediately bunged into the House of Lords and given ministerial portfolios. So I, if you ask me to regard this as political reform, I, I might, you know, say, you know, I've got a bridge I could possibly sell you. Um, the logistics of this, Yossi, will be hilarious because one of one of the best-known moments in the British Parliament is the state opening of Parliament. The Queen arrives in the House of Lords. Presumably she would then be, she'd be in York. She then sends her representative, Black Rod, to summon MPs to join them in the House of Lords for the Queen's... I don't know, does he get a train? Does he sit in traffic on the M1 or something? They will use the helicopters that the one in Davos... They're not, using in Davos. They're not using in Davos right now. So, you know, well, it could be a cunning ploy not to open Parliament, which Boris Johnson does have a track record there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's prolongate the, the, the house, you know, forever. We cause so we much confusion, need... you can never open it again. Yeah. We, so it's, we've it's, been it's... foolishly thinking that how would they make this work, but actually they wouldn't, they just shut it down. Yeah. The answer was staring us <laughs> in the face go. all along. It's another, as Elizabeth said, it's one of not even half-baked plans. It's probably not even buying the ingredients for the cake there. And just throw it, it sounds good, it captures the headlines. I did something for my voters now that I won the elections. It probably will never happen, but... But for two minutes, I have great headlines. Yossi Meckelberg and Isabel Hilton, thank you both very much. That's it for today. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bage. Our studio managers were Steph Chung and David Stevens. At 2000, a new edition of Monocle on Culture with Robert Bound. And Monocle's House View returns at the same time, 1800 London time tomorrow. For now, though, from me, Paul Osborne, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.